Hello and welcome to the June 1st, 2021 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to telling you about some of the new material you'll find if you go to annals.org. As the COVID-19 pandemic is hopefully waning in the U.S., we recognize that the pandemic is by no means over as the virus continues to ravage India and other countries. And while infection rates are abating in the U.S., there are many people who report persisting symptoms after recovering from acute SARS-CoV-2 infection. Annals of Internal Medicine and the American College of Physicians will be hosting a virtual forum on evaluation and management of patients with persisting symptoms following acute SARS-CoV-2 infection. The virtual forum, which will occur on June 9th at 3.30 p.m. Eastern, is open to ACP members and Annals subscribers and video of the event will be available to all a few days after the live event. Annals Deputy Editor, Dr. Deborah Cotton, will moderate a discussion among our panelists, Lori Newman from the National Institutes of Health, John Brooks from the CDC, and Aluko Hope, who led one of the first post-COVID clinics in the U.S. Look for your invitation to the live event or go to annals.org after June 11th to view the forum at your convenience. Now let's get to the new material published on annals.org since our last podcast. The first study I'll mention is a retrospective cohort study that found an association between autologous cortisol secretion and increased risk for death and cardiovascular disease in patients with adrenal incidentalomas. Researchers from Skane University Hospital in Sweden studied consecutive patients who had adrenal incidentalomas identified between 2005 and 2015 at two hospitals in Sweden to measure the association between mortality and levels of autonomous cortisol secretion. Patients were grouped according to plasma cortisol level of less than 50, 50 to 82, 83 to 137, or 138 and higher. Data were collected from national registers for up to 14 years. The researchers found that the risk for mortality increased linearly until cortisol levels reached 200 nanomoles per liter. Levels of 83 to 137 were associated with a two-fold increase in mortality, and levels of 138 or higher were associated with a three-fold increase in mortality. A cortisol level in the 50 to 82 range was not associated with increased death risk within five to 10 years. Based on these results, the authors recommend that clinicians treat known cardiovascular risk factors in these patients and incorporate findings in treatment decisions, including whether or not to recommend adrenalectomy. Early in the COVID-19 pandemic, the American College of Physicians began developing living rapid practice points in response to the urgent need to provide evidence-based answers to clinicians' questions about managing patients with COVID-19. An article published on annals.org on May 25th explains in detail ACP's methods for rapidly developing trustworthy clinical advice. The process includes rapid systematic review, use of the GRADE method to rate the certainty of evidence for outcomes of interest, use of stringent policies on the disclosure of interest and management of conflicts, and incorporating a public perspective. When the ACP rapid practice points are based on evidence that is limited or evolving quickly, such as with the COVID-19 pandemic, the systematic review and practice points are maintained as living documents through ongoing surveillance and synthesis of new evidence as it emerges. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Julian Elliott and Dr. Britta Tendel Jeppesen commend the ACP's approach. They write, quote, the approach the ACP took was to invest more resources and to narrow scope, avoiding the need to sacrifice important methodological steps 
such as a systematic review of the evidence, conflict of interest management, and the use of grade methodology, thereby ensuring both rapid and trustworthy clinical guidance. Solid organ transplant recipients represent a high-risk group for developing severe SARS-CoV-2 infection, with this group having a risk for mortality with COVID-19 of approximately 20%. COVID vaccines offer hope to protect this population, but the response to vaccination in this population is uncertain. The next article measured SARS-CoV-2 antibodies in solid organ transplant recipients in a region of Southwest France after vaccination. 367 patients who had four-week follow-up after the second vaccine dose, the prevalence of the anti-SARS-CoV-2 antibodies increased from 1.4% at baseline to 33.8% one month after the second dose. The vaccine was well-tolerated with the only serious adverse event noted being lower limb paresthesia in a liver transplant recipient. The report suggests weak immunogenicity of mRNA vaccines in transplant patients. The authors speculate that a vaccine with increased antigen dose or third vaccine dose should be studied as approaches to improve the vaccination response in this vulnerable population. The next article also concerns COVID vaccine response in another vulnerable population, patients with rheumatic and musculoskeletal diseases whose responses to vaccine may be hindered by the immunomodulatory effects of their underlying diseases and treatment with immunosuppressive agents. In this report, the researchers sought to identify clinical characteristics of patients with rheumatic and musculoskeletal diseases who did not develop detectable antibody response one month after completion of a two-dose of COVID mRNA vaccine. 20 participants were included in this case series. A unifying factor among these 20 patients with undetectable antibody was use of either a beta lymphocyte depleting agent or medication that affects lymphocytes. This supports the critical role of B-cell immunocompetence in generating appropriate response to vaccine antigen and contrast with the robust responses observed in other patients with rheumatic and musculoskeletal diseases not on these agents. Additional research is required to further characterize the humoral and cellular response to SARS-CoV-2 vaccination in this patient population. As I mentioned earlier, some patients develop persisting symptoms following acute SARS-CoV-2 infection, and there remains uncertainty around whether vaccination might worsen these symptoms, leading to some vaccine hesitancy among affected individuals. The next article describes quality of life and symptoms following SARS-CoV-2 vaccination in a series of 29 patients with persistent symptoms eight months after hospitalization with COVID-19. The findings provide some reassurance to the increasing number of individuals suffering persistent symptoms that receipt of an mRNA or adenoviral vector vaccine is not associated with a decrease in quality of life or worsening of symptoms. Further work, including appropriate unvaccinated controls, is needed to more definitively describe the trajectory of persisting symptoms following COVID-19 vaccination. Next is a randomized controlled trial that found that Tai Chi is about as effective as conventional exercise for reducing waist circumference among adults with central obesity. Tai Chi is a form of mind-body exercise often described as meditation in motion. It is practiced in many Asian communities as becoming increasingly popular in Western countries, with more than 2 million people practicing it in the U.S. While it is known to be a suitable activity for older people, including those who are not physically active, while it is thought to be a suitable activity for older people, including those who are not tremendously physically active, there previously has been little evidence on Tai Chi's health benefits. 
Researchers from the University of Hong Kong randomly assigned more than 500 adults with central obesity to a regimen of Tai Chi, conventional exercise, or no exercise over three months. Participants in the Tai Chi and exercise groups met for instructor-led workouts for one hour, three times a week for 12 weeks. The Tai Chi program consisted of Yang style of Tai Chi, the most common style adopted in the literature, and the conventional exercise program consisted of brisk walking and strength training activities. Waist circumference and other indicators of metabolic health were measured at baseline 12 weeks and 38 weeks. The researchers found that both the Tai Chi intervention and conventional exercise groups had reductions in waist circumference relative to controls. The reduction in waist circumference had a favorable impact on HDL cholesterol, or so-called good cholesterol, but did not translate into detectable differences in fasting glucose or blood pressure. According to the study authors, their findings are good news for middle-aged and older adults who have central obesity but may be adverse to conventional exercise due to preference or limited mobility. In the next article, researchers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention used Medicare claims data for 28.1 million fee-for-service beneficiaries to examine the characteristics and medical spending of older adults who were diagnosed with COVID-19 from April through December 2020. The data showed that the hospitalization rate was more than 60 times higher and the mortality rate was 2.5 times higher for older adults compared to the general population. The average cost of treatment was considerable among those older adults who were hospitalized, but the cost of COVID-19-related hospitalization decreased with age for the five medical outcomes considered. According to the authors, possible reasons include higher mortality rates among older patients, resulting in shorter hospital stays and lower costs, the lower likelihood of younger adults to become seriously ill, and less aggressive care with increasing age. The data also showed that people of color accounted for a disproportionate share of hospitalizations and deaths during the pandemic, and Black, Hispanic, and Asian Pacific Islander older adults had higher probability of death and receiving ventilator support during hospitalization than non-Hispanic white patients. This finding highlights the importance of identifying effective strategies to promote COVID-19 vaccine uptake among persons aged 65 years or older to mitigate the increased disease and economic burden. There are over 500,000 patients on dialysis in the U.S. today. CMS spends about $100,000 per person per year for patients on dialysis, which is about 6 to 7% of the total Medicare budget and almost 1% of the total federal government budget. In 2012, the CMS started levying performance-based financial penalties against outpatient dialysis centers under the mandatory ESRD QIP program. For many reasons, including the complexity of the program, its effect on quality has never been measured. Researchers from the Center for Healthcare Outcomes and Policy and the University of Michigan studied publicly available Medicare data to determine whether penalization was associated with improvement in dialysis center quality. The data showed that 1,109 outpatient dialysis centers received penalties in 2017 based on performance in 2015. Penalties were not associated with improvement in total performance scores in 2017 or 2018. This was consistent across a range of different types of centers and individual quality metrics included in the program's total performance score. According to the authors, these findings are significant because they can help Medicare improve the program, which has broad implications for the quality of outpatient dialysis in the United States. Medical schools are reckoning with the impact of structural racism on minority trainees, yet many proposed solutions to structural problems remain focused on individual interventions. 
Drawing on racialized organizations theory, the authors of the next article argue that medical schools are racialized organizations whose processes reproduce racial inequality in ways beyond individuals. Examining scholarship on race and medical training, they illustrate how racial bias is baked into seemingly race-neutral organizational processes from entrance into medical school, the preclinical and clinical years, the residency application process, and overall career trajectory. The authors conclude by offering suggestions for evidence-based structural interventions to improve underrepresented minority trainees' experiences in medicine. And also addressing racism in medicine is a new on being a doctor essay. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, Asian Americans have been the fastest growing group in the U.S. over the past two decades, with an estimated 22.9 million Asian Americans comprising 5.7% of the U.S. population in 2019. Asian Americans are a diverse group tracing their roots back to more than 20 countries in East, Southeast, and South Asia. Often considered together with Native Hawaiians and other Pacific Islanders, the Asian American and Pacific Islander community in the U.S. represents a multitude of ethnicities, languages, religions, histories, geographies, and cultures. But Asian American and Pacific Islanders occupy a fraught space in the racial fabric of the U.S., the model minority myth posits that they have attained high rates of educational achievement and financial success in the U.S. and implies that they must therefore not be subject to discrimination. But there is a long history of anti-Asian racism in this nation and a rising tide of racism and xenophobia since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. The author of the On Being a Doctor essay describes the challenges faced by an Asian American woman physician. Whatever your own background is, please go to annals.org to read this essay and the article on medical schools as racialized organizations. They are both eye-opening. The last new material I'll mention is the latest episode of the Annals on Call podcast. The topic of this episode is the increasing array of positive outcomes associated with SGLT2 inhibitors. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and please go to annals.org to take a closer look at some of the new material I've mentioned. As always, there are plenty of opportunities to earn CME and MOC credit if you do. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.